welcome to episode 46 of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Chris Hales. Glad to be bringing you another episode of the show that features original compositions from around the globe for that wonderful instrument known as the classical guitar. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to be back to the regular show now. If you did happen to listen to the Halloween special, I hope you enjoyed it. But none of that today. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about horror movies or nothing. Maybe a little bit of life, though, because it's been rough. It's been a rough month for me. Luxury problems, but nonetheless, difficulties have arisen. I've had not the... <laughs> a lot of things seem to be just going wrong. One being a, a flood that happened in my basement right after a plumber came and cleared my drain. Apparently not good enough, and the exact thing I was trying to prevent from happening happened, so... There's that, but there's a silver lining for me because something happened that's never happened to me before. <laughs> I was out disc golfing with my buddy Parker, and I've been disc golfing for, I don't know, 12 years, I'd say. I think it's been about that. I got my first hole in one. <laughs> it was cool. And what was funny is, uh, <laughs> the way he described it was was pretty funny. I was telling him about this gig I had coming up where I was performing um, for this conference uh, that was being held in Utah Valley, and they they wanted a some music to play for their like the lunch. So I played the lunch and. It was fun. I played mostly original pieces. Or, well, maybe not mostly. I'd say I played, like, half original pieces, half other stuff. Like, I played uh, My American Suite, which the intro to this podcast comes from, and the outro. And I played... Uh, I played my Scarborough Fair Variations, which is the most recent thing I've recorded of mine. I did not play my graveyard suite. I felt like that one was maybe a little too... Uh, it, it didn't seem quite like the mood they were going for, so... I don't know, I played like a bunch of Tariga pieces, and... Um, what else did I play? I can't remember. I mean, I played for uh, an hour, over an hour. Oh, I played a little Lobos. Uh, speaking of him, I've, I've got a Lobos update in my quest. But anyway, so as I was throwing this drive in my disc golf round, I was talking about this gig I have coming up, and I, I was basically complaining about being tired <laughs> because I had been getting up early to practice for this gig, and had been getting to bed late, so I hadn't had a lot of sleep, and <laughs> the way Parker described it is like, I was like just talking uh, the whole time, like as I threw, like while the disc was in the air, and all of a sudden I was like, go in, <laughs> and it hit the chains. Anyway, that was a pretty cool moment for me. So, I guess there's, you know, like I say, I've kind of had a hard month with things just inconveniences I guess and expenses but but had that great round of disc golf and then I also finished the piece I've been working on which is always really exciting I don't know how long I've been working on this this latest piece but it's it's gotta have been like approaching a year I would think because it was the next thing I worked on after I finished my uh, theme and variations, and I know, I can't remember when I finished that, but I, I feel like it was about this time last year. I don't know how quickly I jumped into composing the next piece. I mean, it took me a while to really get an idea going, but there was various interruptions, but it it felt like I'd been working on this piece for so long. At one point, I almost was ready to abandon it, and now it's finished, and I, I was sitting down 
Oh, you know what else happened? I've I've had a record number of broken thumbnails this year. I mean, I've I've got half a thumbnail right now, like half of it's gone. Um, I've managed to smooth out the the half that's on the left side of the thumb, so it's the half that makes contact with the string. And there's just enough nail on there to pluck okay without it grabbing or doing anything weird. I mean, usually I've never been able to save like half the nail. Usually you just it like you use more of the nail than you think, at least I do. And so I I don't know, man. It's been like it's had to have been at least three times this year I've busted my thumbnail, which has gotta be a record. I'm usually good for like if I've busted it, I'm probably not gonna break it again for at least eight months, I'd say, generally, until this year. So I often just don't practice when I break a thumbnail, or any nail for that matter, until it grows back, because I don't like to put on the fake nails if I don't have to. But anyway, so that's done. It's a Sonata. So I was going to do like a three movement Sonata. I've, I'm considering just doing a two movement because of the, the first movement. I, I don't feel like it, it, it may not benefit from being having that slow movement interlude in the middle because the first movement has a, it's got some slower qualities to it. It's a little more lyrical than I would say like a first movement often is. Not that they're, I don't know what the right word is. So I'm not sure, I haven't decided yet. I also, uh, it, this weird thing happened as I was working on this piece was, I, you know, I talked a little bit about the, you know, sonata form and having the two themes and whatnot. When I, when I was working on the second theme, I didn't realize that I had really slowed down my tempo with this theme and I was playing like a completely different tempo. Well, that's the thing. It's, it, I guess, not completely. It's slower. It's a slower tempo, but it's not like way slower. But it's such a different feel from the first theme that in my mind, I wasn't doing anything different until I started to flesh the piece out more and I, I realized what I'd been doing. And so then I was like, okay, well, I have these, you know, contrasting themes also you know, have two, two different tempos, which, you know, is fine. But I was playing through it after I finished it, and I was like, you could play the second theme in tempo with the first. It works. It's actually more what I had in mind. But I think the second theme is benefits from slowing down a little bit. I really like uh, some of the phrases and the chord progression. I think um, when it's played at the same tempo as the first theme, it loses some of its emotion to me. So anyway, because of that, I don't know that this piece benefits from having a slow movement. I almost feel like it needs to launch right into a, a faster movement, uh, which there's plenty of um, two movement sonatas, especially in earlier music. A lot of Baroque sonatas were two movements, if I remember some that I've seen correctly. A lot of them were four movements, starting with a slow movement. That's kind of like your box sonata. This is this is much more of a, a sonata in the classical sense. But I I know of. Uh, I know there are two movement sonatas, um, tons of two movement sonatinas. But anyway, and a lot of those, a lot of those two movement sonatinas in the classical period, they're kind of like that. The, the second movement is kind of your faster one. Your first one is a little more lyrical, but there's not, there's often not like a slow movement. So anyway, I think that's what I'm going to do. So I was, I've, I do this thing when I. I'll, I'll sit and improvise sometimes and if something starts to get interesting I'll just grab my phone and start recording video so that's what I was doing for I, I came up with a really 
what I thought was a cool idea for the second movement of this sonata. And my fingers were warm. It was just one of those days. I'm sure you've all had these where it's just, it's flowing. The ideas are flowing and your fingers are working. And I was like, I mean, I, <laughs> I have a, a range of speed, right? And when I'm really practiced and warm and everything's good, I've got like this top speed and I was in that zone. And so I was like laying down some really fast stuff and just cool ideas. And I recorded it and didn't save it, I guess. It's not there. It's not on my phone. <laughs> I was so bummed. So I remembered some of what I was doing, but it, it didn't quite have the energy that I thought it had when I recorded the video. I don't know if I'm doing some things different, but whatever I had going on in that video is it's come and gone. But, you know, I know, I know basically what I was doing, so the idea is still here. The end result may not be any different. I don't know. Truth be told, it, I may end up with the exact same piece that I would have had the video recorded. But that's where I'm at, so I'm looking forward to showing it to all of you but it's still going to be a ways out because I have to finish the full piece and then record it. And I'll say, you know, it's not my favorite work I've ever written, but it's I, I still like it. I'm still proud of it. My two suites that I've shared on this show really are my favorite compositions of my own. They, I think for me, because they are playable, so I can I can play them in front of people and I can get them in my fingers quickly and I, I think they have I think they make for nice recordings and I just think they're fun to play but still I'm happy with this so uh, I'll keep you posted as I go so I mentioned that uh, I have an update on my Via Lobos journey let me let me set a little context here for this I, I like to read okay I, it's what I do, it's the last thing I do every day. When I go to bed, I read for about an hour. And the, honestly, I mostly read fiction. I, I read for entertainment and to just kind of unwind after the long day. So I, I would say like 80-90% of what I read is fiction. But every every few books I go, okay, I, I need to read something nonfiction because I I do feel like it's probably, <laughs> I think it's important to read nonfiction. Uh, the thing, yeah. So anyway, I, it's kind of, I, I pref I'd prefer to read like nonfiction <laughs> in the morning because at the, at the end of the day, I just want to like unwind, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I have a lot already. It's also when I try to read news and stuff like that but so every every few books I'll just make me I'll make myself read a non-fiction book I'll just I'll find something and and then additionally to that every few books I try to read like a piece of classic literature and I don't know why I don't know why other than I've always felt like you should <laughs> I don't have any good reason for it uh, I, I don't particularly enjoy classic literature a ton. I mean, I will enjoy it, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's got to be a little more sparse. So anyway, but I, but I do. And about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, maybe, it's, maybe it was exactly when I started playing disc golf. I don't know. I had decided it's time to read Moby Dick, the great American novel by Herman Melville, and I don't know if any book has ever taken me longer to read than Moby Dick. I did not enjoy it. If you've never read Moby Dick, the story is interesting, and it has a lot of great chapters and great moments, and the end is incredible, but I would say 80% of that book is an encyclopedia on whaling, and I'm not kidding, like 80%. It is... You know, you'll be you'll be going along, and all of a sudden, you know, here's a chapter that's 
Uh, that's been too long, I can't remember. Like, <laughs> There's a chapter about cisterns. I think there's a chapter titled Cistern and Buckets. <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, I just, I struggled to get through it. I thought it was so boring. And also, like, hard to understand if you're not familiar with a lot of, like, seafaring terminology. And I'm not. And I didn't care to sit and look up words in the dictionary every three lines as I read Anyway, so I slogged through that entire book. I finished it. I, I was determined to finish it. I felt like it's this thing I have where, you know, well, it's, it's important to read classical literature, so, you know, you got you to gotta read Moby Dick. You got to get through it. And then you can at least say you've read Moby Dick. I don't know how long it took me to read that book, but I'm sure it's longer than any book I've ever finished. And... <laughs> Boy, yeah, anyway. And in the end, I was like, I'm glad I did it. I don't ever want to do it again. And I'm going to be a little more selective on on what I choose to read going forward. Okay, well now, anyway. Returning to Villalobos. I love the solo works of Villalobos. Let's go through them. You have the Shoral, number one which is the only one that was for solo classical guitar. So that's our first. I'm going by the order they are in the Complete Works book I have. And you have the Brazilian Suite, which is a nice little, you know, collection of rondos, mostly. Uh, then you have the 12 Etudes, and you have the Five Preludes. I love those Five Preludes. That's probably my favorite. I think the Preludes are the easiest to play, for sure. I think they're for sure the easiest to play. But I also think they're the most musically rewarding <laughs> of all his stuff. I like Shoro number one, uh, but I get I get tired of it. It's it's one of those pieces like I've played it many times, I've programmed it, but it's not my it's not my favorite V Lobos piece. And the Brazilian suite is wonderful. I think the only thing with the Brazilian Suite is it's it can feel a little like monotonous to play sometimes. I think I think you have to be away from it for a while and then then it's it's not so bad, but if you've been like working on it for a really long time, you know, it it, it can feel a little monotonous and uh I've heard some recordings of Manuel Barueco where he cut so I think I think they're all rondos. I can't remember for sure, but but most are. So like like we'll take that middle waltz. It goes the it's got an A section, and it has a B section, and then it plays the A section again, and it plays a C section, and then the A section again. So it's five part rondo, and you, and so you end up hearing that A section three times. He cuts the middle one, so it goes A B C A. I believe that's what he does. And I honestly think that's to the benefit only of the player. I, I actually feel like those pieces, even even with that repetitiveness, because those sections are kind of long, so it's like, I mean, that's, that's typical for a rondo, but for whatever reason, those A sections feel long when you've heard them three times. But if you're just listening, like a clean listen, I think it benefits from having all five parts. I think that as a player you might feel like you're getting a little monotonous and so the temptation is to cut that middle A section. Anyway, that's my conclusion of that. I, I feel that it benefits the player more than the listener. <laughs> I've gotten really off course. Anyway, I, I do really like the Brazilian Suite. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm, what I'm getting to is the etudes. The etudes are kind of hit or miss musically for me. So to tell you the truth, I don't I don't care much for most of the etudes. I think they're more fun to play than they are to listen to, and I don't think they're very fun to play. <laughs> I think that etude number one is absolutely like a programmable piece. I think it it's 
it functions as a, very well as an etude, but I actually think it has uh, some musicality to it. You can really build that thing to the end. Very cool uh, riff with the, the harmonics at the end. That etude number one is, I'm going to give that, oh my gosh, I'm going to, this is unplanned, but I'm going to, I'm going to rate them. Let's, let's give them a star ratings. I'm going to write it down. This is totally unplanned. I was going to just talk about them, but I'm going to give etude number one a solid four star rating. Yep. Four stars for etude number one. I think it's, no, I'm going to go four and a half, actually. I think that etude number one is going to, it's, it's almost a five for me. Okay. Etude number two, very popular etude. Uh, a lot of people play it. A lot of people play it very well. I, it's very difficult for me. I mean, I'm. I feel that I'm a very good guitarist, but I I know where my weaknesses are. There are some things in A2 number two that are. I've never been okay. A2 number two hurts my hand, and I've never been somebody who has any trouble with bars at all. Like, not at all. But there are some bars in A2 number two that just start to hurt because you're just playing these repeated patterns holding these bars. And Anyway, so I don't think it's fun to play. I'm rating these based on is it fun to play and is it pleasant to listen to. I don't think it has um, much in the way of musicality, but it can be impressive. So it's, I, I think this one probably overrated. But uh, I'm going to give Etude number two. I'm going to put it right in the middle. I'm going to give it two and a half stars. Maybe I'm a little bit bitter because I struggled with it. Etude number three. I found this one a lot more fun to play than it is to listen to. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that one's kind of cool. I think it... Oh, let me give you a third category. <laughs> For rating these. I know we've already been through the first two, but it's kind of in the back of my mind. Does it have an offering of, like, an etude is supposed to train you in a skill that's useful in the real world of guitar. Etude is like, an etude is like going to college so that you can play real pieces, right? And it's like a class on a specific skill. So, etude number one is right hand arpeggios that's that's your skill and they're like with some other cool stuff splashed in it's it's definitely useful however you do the finger pattern there's you can do it the really hard way or you can do it my way and <laughs> uh if you can do it the really hard way good on you anyway etude number two how useful is the, i mean yeah arpeggios you use uh i still don't know that there's a lot of like value in these arpeggios I really I don't see a lot of like real world application of this uh, I, I just don't there's there's like the standard A major a, uh, arpeggio that it begins with and a couple of others that are pretty standard but there's some weird ones in there that I just don't see a lot of real world application for I'm keeping that one at two and a half stars number three I'm gonna also give two and a half stars. It's it's okay musically. It's fun to play ish, and the application. I mean, it's a lot of like hammers on hammer ons. Uh, there is some pretty gnarly stuff as it adds bass notes in the beginning. Kind of keeps repeating a similar pattern, but you add all these bass notes, and it's. It's pretty useful, but I'm, I'm going to go two and a half. It's still not great. Okay, etude number four. Yeah, that one is just chords plucked somewhat quickly. It's so boring. <laughs> etude number four is so boring. Uh, oh, man. It was more fun to play. I don't think it's fun to listen to at all. I mean, if, if I went to a classical recital and somebody programmed etude number four, I might leave. <laughs> I might leave. 
it was more fun to play than I thought it would be. It's definitely more fun to play than it than it is to listen to. I'm gonna give it um, two stars. That one's gonna get the smallest rating so far. Yeah. Number five. I am going to give number five three stars. I think number five is better than etude number two or three or four. I think it's got kind of that creepy little haunting quality to it. There's uh, This has a little more musicality to it. I'd probably give it, you know, a three-star rating on, you know, uh, like what it's like to listen to. Yep. I could almost give this one three and a half, actually. I think five's pretty good, but we'll, we'll go with three. All right. Number six, chords. Big chords. Uh, six is boring. I didn't find six very fun to play at all. I don't like to listen. I don't like six very much at all. I think I'm gonna give six one and a half stars. I don't see a ton of value etude wise to take into the real world. Maybe some. Yeah, that might be a little harsh. There's there's some there. I, I it's broken into two parts. So you have the the part where you are playing these big chords kind of blocked and it, and they're moving quickly so this i guess the the skill is to chord to chord 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 right that is a good skill uh but here's my thoughts on that if you're good enough to play etude number six or to even like take it on you can probably already do that pretty well and every co difficult chord change is particular to the piece so if you have a piece that has a difficult chord change from this chord to this chord, you're going to have to just practice those chords going back and forth over and over again until it becomes part of your muscle memory. That's what you. Ju that's just. That's what I do. That's what you do. A2 number six is a whole bunch of that that's not going to actually translate to any piece other than A2 number six. So, I'm I'm probably given. I'm going to give this one a pretty low rating. I'm giving this one one and a half. I don't like to play it. I don't like to hear it. And and then the second half is like the same chords, just broken, going thumb fingers, thumb fingers. It's like eighth notes, I think. And I don't really find a, a much value in this etude at all. I spent very little time on this one. I got it in, got it done, and I'm I'm done with this one. Okay, number seven. Number seven is one of my favorites. I really like number seven. I would say this one is modeled in kind of an ABA fashion. You have the uh, fast scale runs, and then that uh, cool, like, arpeggiated pattern with melody going on. Seven is really cool. Seven, seven is very, very musical compared to most of its buddies around it. Uh, yeah, I absolutely dig seven. So I think it's really fun to play. I like to listen to number seven. A uh, particular recording I, I like is Tillman Hopstock's recording of number seven. Is that his name? <laughs> I hope I got that right. <laughs> that sounds weird to me saying it out loud, but I think that's his name. He, oh man, he puts such a cool emphasis on um, the way he accents in the arpeggiated part with the melody. He, he does some accents. It gives it a very... Um, almost like dance-ish salsa feel. It's really cool. That's a, such a great recording. I actually kind of tried to mimic um, stylistically what he was doing when I first did Etude Number 7. So that one's really cool. Uh, my, I'm not going to give it 5. I'm going to give it 4.5 because those trills at the end are just hand killers. And <laughs> I... Yeah, they so so because of those, I don't play seven as often as I would like to. And I also say like as an etude, I don't I mean seven to me feels more like just a cool piece, just kind of a flashy I'd describe it more as a caprice than an etude. I'm gonna give it four and a half stars. Seven is awesome. Okay, number eight. Number eight is my favorite Villalobos etude. I'm giving it five stars. 
and I'm ignoring the fact that I don't see a lot of value for this one as far as an etude. I don't really know what this one is giving you an etude in other than maybe finding musicality in sort of a strange chord progression, but I, I think number eight is playable. I, I Number eight to me is like a piece, so maybe I should knock it for not being much of an etude, but it's probably the easiest etude to play, I'd say, and I think it's by far the most musical. It's fun to play, and I have very fond feelings toward etude number eight. It has a dark, really cool intro. I mean, no, etude number eight might be, like, among my favorite Villalobos guitar pieces. So I, I'm giving it five stars, even though I don't really... I've never quite understood how it is functioning as an etude. But it's just it makes such a cool piece that it deserves its five star rating to me. Okay, so now he's on a roll. He's written number seven, four and a half star piece. Number eight, a five star piece. And then we come rolling into number nine. I just finished number nine. I'd give it like maybe three and a half to four stars as far as value on being a like it's functioning as an etude. I'm not going to give it much for musicality, and I'm not going to give it much for enjoyment to play. I, I didn't really enjoy number nine at all. I'm going to say that number nine for me is a two-star piece. Yep. Two-star piece. It, it's, a, it's a medium to hard difficulty, I'd say. Yeah, it's pretty difficult, I guess. I just... I. I don't enjoy it. Sometimes, like, you know, you can enjoy a piece that might not be the most fun thing to listen to. You know, like, I'd say etude number three is more in that category, but yeah, number nine, I just, I don't really enjoy hearing it, playing it. I'm, I'm only, I'm giving it two stars based on the value. The value being, uh, it has these, um, the changes are, are harder than they should be, for one thing. And it has, like, it has some pretty cool uh, things going on in it. There's, there's this one section where you are doing hammer-ons while holding chords, so you, you don't really have the full, like, strength of your pinky to do these hammer-ons. And you're doing them, like, open to, like, up on the neck, like, up to the 14th fret. So you're doing open string to 14th fret hammer-ons underneath a chord so you don't have the full strength of your pinky because you are anchored with this chord. So it, it it's definitely a test of pinky strength. And I was just like, in what situation would you ever like do this in an actual musical piece? I can't see any almost anything like that. And then that etude is going to be wildly different in difficulty based on how high your action is. So yeah. Like but there's but there is stuff in it that I do find valuable and anyway, that's um that's how I'm giving it a 2-star rating. Let's go on to number 10. Number 10 is is one I really like a lot. Um Number 10 is also the first piece I ever, like, stopped playing and said, this is just too hard for me. <laughs> but when I did that, I actually still, I had it all fingered. I could play it, but it just killed me. It just wore my hand out, and it just didn't feel worth it to me. But I actually think 10 is very cool musically. So let's go through 10. And then uh, there's also the the complicated issue with number 10 that I'm going to get into. So number 10 is one I've, I've, I, I didn't do all the etudes in order. I'm doing all the remaining ones in order that I haven't done. 10 I did, it was one of the earlier ones I did. And okay, so 10 has two different versions. I learned the version that's been published for years that kind of we all know, well maybe not we all, but you know, whatever. It's the one that, you know, appears in the that the complete works of Villalobos solo guitar. 
collection. And I'm pretty sure what's going on with it is it's just flat out missing a page. They found later, I really, w I didn't necessarily uh, know I was going to be doing a deep dive on Villalobos etudes today. I wanted to, I want to research this because I don't know, I know there's this other page that's been found. Anyway, 10 has this amazing intro. Like, well, we'll just talk about the 10 that we know. It's a very cool little section. It's not really difficult, and it, it's very much an intro. It's like a building intro, and it's really cool. And then it has this little run to, like, nowhere. It The run is marked, it ends with a slide, like, up. Like, slide up as if you're sliding up to the next note. But then the next note, when you go to the next page, is lower. And com musically completely like different from what you were just playing, and so it's this weird abrupt change, and so that's why I, I'm I'm hypothesizing I have not yet read the history of Etude Number Ten, and this other page, but there's the, the full version is what I'd call it. There's actually that note is sliding into a another note. It's a D to an E, and then there's this whole other section, and this has been recorded by probably several people, but it. Uh, the one I'm familiar with is uh, Fabio Zanon's recording. Goes into uh, this this other section, and and I to me I don't I don't know if they think like Villalobos added this later or if they just found it later or whatever. But to me it feels like this was probably always meant to be there. It it makes the first page make sense. It's a much better transition to the really fast slur section at the end okay so I've never I've never when I learned number 10 I did not have the that version I only had the the smaller version that's what I learned I think number 10 is really cool musically and I think it's even better musically with the the full the full version so I haven't played that version and now I'm in a dilemma. I'm going, as I go through my quest through the etudes, do I need to go back and redo 10? Because I don't, I don't really want to. But I kind of want to learn that section. I have a an edition now that was put out by Frederick Zagante. Frederick Zagante is a masterful researcher. I love getting anything he's published because he will give you the full history of stuff. I mean, his... He, his research is very well done. I, I always enjoy reading his prefaces, and yet I haven't read this one. I haven't read the Villalobos prefaces. I just, I bought this book as kind of a, you know, the one I have is completely unfingered, and, um, you know, I just wanted like a, I basically bought it as a second opinion, but then there's all this other information, so I, I'm going to read it, and then I, I will have to report back to you on what, what information is in there, but a2 number 10 I'm going to give I'm going to give A2 number 10 four stars I think it's cool but it's very hard to play and tiresome but I, I, I like it I do see the musical or excuse me I see the value the skill value of it and I, I like the musicality of it you know it's kind of a flashy piece so etude number 10 gets four stars. All right, etude number 11 is one of my favorite etudes. And I have read through 11 a lot. I'm just now starting to actually like give it a solid like working where I'm, you know, really getting into how I want to play it musically and stuff and not just like sight read it, you know what I mean? Etude number 11 is so cool. And the recording I would refer you to is Zanon's. Zanon's recording of 11. I've never heard any any recording come close to his. The way he hits that incredible middle arpeggiated section, he hits it with so much force and it just drives. And the first time I heard it, I was just like blown away absolutely blown away I've heard other great guitarists play this piece and you know Zanon found something in that piece that other guys have just not found guitarists I really like they hit that middle section and I'm like this just falls 
flat compared to Zanon. So a little bit influenced by uh, the way he plays it, but n number 11 is very cool, especially mostly for the middle section. And so if you, if you, you'll have to listen to it if you don't know what I'm talking about, but it, it's got this arpeggiated pattern and it, it requires a lot of concentration, a lot of control. It, it is 100%. Um, it's a useful skill. It's musical. That's very cool. The reason I'm not going to give 11 five stars is because the surrounding material of that is not, it's not really anything to be too excited about. The intro is very cool, very haunting, kind of slow. Then it goes into the fast. It's very rubato. I've never heard it not played like rubato. It's written that way. There's a lot of like speed up, slow down. And, you know, to listen to the whole thing, like, if it weren't for that middle section, I, it would, you know, I, I just don't think that surrounding materials is as interesting musically, but still overall 11's a great piece. And, you know, in context with the middle section, that surrounding stuff is a lot cooler. So I'm giving 11 four. Are we going to go four? Are we can actually go four and a half. I might go four and a half on 11. I really, if, if played well, this piece is, pretty amazing so we'll go four and a half yep okay now number 12 is the only one i i feel a little uh under knowledge to speak on because i've never played number 12 i don't even know if i've ever read through number 12 so i can only go on i do know at least like what it does um i know the skill it's working on just not actually having done it i can't speak to number 12s value as an etude or how fun it is to play so we're going to go only off of the musicality for the listener it's kind of like the uh, when they evaluate pipe tobacco one of the the categories that's always there is the room note which means how good does this smoke smell to people who are in the room with you <laughs> so I'm, I'm only looking at number 12's room note and uh, it's, it's, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm going to give number 12 two stars based on listening to it. In fact, I, I number 12 almost sounds to me like it's fast, it's frantic, and it almost sounds to me like just, just as a listener, like I got to get my last etude in, and it was frantically like written. <laughs> I don't like it. Might change, though. My opinion is often get altered so there's there's a good solid look at the first 11 based on my experience and my opinions and number 12 is just sort of a arbitrary listener's opinion but i give number one four and a half stars i give number two two and a half by the way with number two the other thing about number two with this arpeggio thing i think that carcassi's etude number 25 which is starts out pretty much exactly like Villalobos is number two and is a similar for the purpose of the etude very similar I think Carcassi's is easier to play more enjoyable to listen to and actually more applicable in the real world so that's another thing about etude number two I, it is the lesser A major arpeggio etude to me alright so number two gets two and a half stars number three also gets two and a half stars uh, it's weird to rank them the same side by side to me because I actually like three more than two, but still three's not great. So two, uh, number four, I'm only giving two stars. Number five, I'm giving three stars. It's kind of solidly in the middle of all those things. Musicality is okay. Playability's playability's fine, but fun, uh, enjoyment to play is three star. Uh, it's a value as an etude, three star. Number six is my lowest. It's one and a half. I think number six is quite, quite boring. In fact, uh, when I finished nine, when I decided it was time to move on, I replayed all of them and just like played through them. And number four and number six were the two that I was just like, no thanks. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I don't even think I finished either of them. I was just like, I have no desire to ever play these pieces again. Number seven, four and a half stars. I love number seven. I love number seven. 
Number eight is my one lone five-star etude. Number eight might be my favorite Villalobos piece, man. I really like number eight. Number nine, two stars. Number nine's boring. Ten, four stars. And possibly with updates in the future, I might be relooking at number ten. Number eleven, four and a half stars. Thank you, Zanon. And number twelve, the room note review is two star. All right, that's my review on uh, Villalobos etudes. That was actually kind of fun to really talk that through out loud. What I was going to do was say that I believe that the Villalobos etudes are the Moby Dick of classical guitar literature. That's what I meant. To, that's what I was getting at with the whole Moby Dick thing. I think that they are regard. They are highly regarded, and perhaps a bit overrated. Amazing at moments, uh, but there's a lot of like extra stuff in there that we could all live without. That's my thoughts on that. Very similar to the book Moby Dick. So I'm not saying that Villalobos' etude shouldn't be highly regarded. Much like Moby Dick, they should be. Uh, understanding their place in all of this and what they do bring to the guitar and just how many people have taken them on and recorded them or just learned them. They're advanced. <laughs> I would say Moby Dick is advanced reading. I, I think that, that it's a perfect analogy. And now, looking at my piece of paper here with, with all the stars, I'm like, okay, etude number one is like, it's like chapter one. All right, pretty solid start. Here we go. And, uh, you know, let's, let's forget etude number 12 and just call etude number 11 that very intense ending of Moby Dick. Four and a half stars. But in the middle, you have like etude number six, which is like cistern and buckets. <laughs> okay, that was a fun topic. I would love to hear any of your responses. If anyone wants to send me their uh, five star ratings for the Villalobos, any or all of the Villalobos etudes, and uh, wants to give comment, commentary. I'll read it on the show. I like this topic. Maybe it's fun to dig. Maybe we should be looking at them more through the lens of composition on this show, but you know how this is. I just kind of talk about what's on my mind. So, But I, I really would like to hear your thoughts on these pieces, if you have any. All right, with that, let's get to what the show is all about. Always the time I invite you to go get yourself an iced tea. I think guitar, classical guitar, it makes good background music like if you're cooking or, you know, maybe doing a little project, maybe driving. Depends on <laughs> my opinion. It's it's definitely a country road uh, music. Not so much I-15. But what was I talking about? <laughs> what was I getting at? The point being guitar is best enjoyed with a in a relaxed state of mind, I think. So, it's a, a nice, like, brisk Saturday morning. I'm enjoying um, a nice warm cup of coffee myself. I have two pieces from composer Mike Woods. We premiered Mike, or <laughs> Mike made his uh, podcast debut, I think, in the September episode, or maybe it was August, can't remember for sure, but... Uh, shared some bagatelles and has a couple more and so I'm looking forward to these and Mike writes Dear Chris I heard the most recent podcast episode as is often the case during a morning run on Saturday as always it was a pleasure to listen and this time of course there was the sensation of hearing my own pieces I feel quite privileged that they aired in an episode that opened with some remarks on the virtues of composing for the classical guitar. Thank you for including the three pieces on the show. You'll see another We Transfer submission containing two other bagatelles, in case there's a place for them. The first is called Undulations. The second is called Death Metal. They are the third and fifth of the five pieces that make up the suite. Any thoughts on the recording quality of these, or on approaches to recording a nylon string guitar in general? Well, many thanks once again. 
and all the best for a wonderful autumn. And a uh, continuing conversation, I just, you know, told Mike, yep, we're going to feature him on the show. He says, I'm looking forward to the show, including any remarks on recording. In the meantime, I'll tune in for the Halloween episode. While not a horror movie buff, I still enjoy the banter. All the best, Mike. P.S. Concerning the composer now known as the, the composer who must not be named, is there any chance of simply referring to him as Lord Voldemort? <laughs> Or leaving a 4 minute and 33 second gap where his name would have been. I'm awfully sorry for these dreadful remarks. Laugh out loud. Please keep up the good work. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, well, maybe... Uh, <laughs> he just seems to keep coming up. Uh, I, know that, I know that Lord Voldemort, Voldemort is a Harry Potter reference. I've, truth be told, I've never read Harry Potter. But my daughter, Keller, really likes it, uh, who was on the show with me last episode. So maybe I'll, ha I'll have to get back to you on that one. I don't know that I would... I don't know really Lord Voldemort's character, but I picture him being, like, a very imposing, scary figure. I would not describe the composer who must not be named as, as that. I would, I would say more of a... Uh, no, I've changed my mind. Maybe that is the right. I well, I don't know the character, but I guess it was a very uh, mild-mannered, uh, seemingly meek person, um, but has done some pretty irreparable damage to music, in my opinion. <laughs> Maybe not irreparable, but has had way too much influence in the world. <laughs> so maybe that is right. Okay. That might be the perfect analogy. Okay, anyway. Thank you, Mike. Uh, as always, I really appreciate the the submissions and any comments on the show. So, here are two more Bag of Tales by Mike Woods. This is Undulations, followed by Death Metal.
And there it is. We've just heard Undulations and Death Metal by Mike Woods. Thanks, Mike. I was very curious about uh, a piece titled <laughs> Death Metal, and I really dig it. That's cool. I think the recordings sound fine. You know, I'm not I'm not quite sure what you're using. I I have gone to a you know matched little stereo pair of condenser mics. I mean, it kind of depends. I there's there's not one way to record or listen to classical guitar. Meaning, like, there's recordings that you know were done in like a big hall and it's they're it's live and it's reverby. And then you've got recordings that are just very dry. I'd say yours are on the dry side, and you know both both are fine. You know where where I'm at is I like to just I like to add a touch of reverb. And I use some very light compression. I don't want to hear compression at all, but I use it to mainly boost those lows a little bit that get lost 
in classical guitar recordings. It's a hard instrument to really capture on audio. It really is. You know, when you're recording for, like, to fit it into a band or something like that, it's kind of a different approach, which is more like what I do for a living, you know, but recording, like, a guitar solo is, is different. So something something that's, like, a little drier like that, you, you, you don't really lose anything. Audio, uh, uh, like, nothing drops out out of earshot you don't have to have it cranked to hear it whereas a lot of like recordings even professional recordings like you lose stuff if you um, don't have it up quite loud and you like have not you don't have a prayer of like really being able to hear it in the car because low end gets drowned out by the highway so so much so I, it's a hard instrument to record my technique really hasn't changed for a long time other than switching mics. I like to mic above the body, uh, pointed down to it. That mitigates kind of those low thumps and kind of that muddiness that you would get if you were like miking lower or st even straight on. I don't go way above it, just, just slightly above it. And then, you know, if you, like, I have a lot of outside noise to contend with you know I don't have a quiet house I don't have quiet neighbors I obviously don't have a soundproof room and so I I mic fairly close not not extremely close but like I would say maybe a foot to two feet away from the guitar it's probably closer to two feet is what I'm doing and then you can just try different, you know, there's this one day I recorded a piece by Ponce years ago and I tried like every possible mic position. I just, I recorded the piece over and over and over again. And each time I would try the mic in a different location. And so that's just kind of how I came to where I'm at. So basically the mics are probably level with the very top of my guitar pointed down toward the top meaning like the like the spruce top level with the top I'm I didn't mean the that top I oh my gosh I've really okay level with like where my arm rests on the side of the guitar and then pointed down toward the you know like I don't point them uh, right at the sound hole I kind of do a little bit off but those are just little tastes I'd say if you're you know if you're having any kind of like room reflection or getting weird weird noises from your room you know you can like hanging blankets uh like standing a mattress up just like things to mitigate reflection and deaden the room a little bit is is a good idea i never do it because i just haven't really had that big of a problem with it surprisingly because i have a room full of instruments that i'm surprised don't like seeing more <laughs> when I'm playing, but it it just might be the the way I might close enough that you know, I'm I'm putting all the I'm not using any room, right? I'm I'm just miking guitar and then I'm using digital reverb and a little bit of compression afterward. If I was going to like if I was like seriously like trying to do the uh, guitar recordings as a career and like sell CDs and stuff, I would not, I would do a lot more. I'd either put some treatment in my room and do a lot more, or I would like, you know, record at a studio, but for just like home recordings and, you know, stuff you're going to like give to your friends. Like I think the best investment you can make is just decent microphone. I might have to, get Parker on one more time and we might have to really get into it. That could be fun. Um, we go a lot deeper than we have really into recording, which we never really did. I kind of brought him on for that reason, but then just <laughs> decided I'd rather just BS with him. So he's moving. He's uh, heading out to Nashville. Dang him. And maybe I ought to get him on one more time before he's gone. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good with audio. I do a lot of 
recording for my job and miking instruments and recording and whatnot. Uh, but a lot of what I do is like stuff in post. And he is like way more of a deep diver into like acoustics and, you know, really the, the science behind all of it. And I'm much more simple about it. I'm like, mm, does this sound good? Yep. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. And I'd like to thank you all for joining me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back with a new episode and new music next month. And until then, enjoy what's left of your autumn or perhaps you're straight on into winter by now. It's getting that way here. It's very cold. Keep on plucking.